to understand the physical heart is one thing. To dive into the depths of the spiritual heart is another thing altogether. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 68. We're continuing our summer series in the Psalms. As I said earlier, we're actually tracking with the devotional, so hopefully it's a motivation to get you uh, constantly in the devotional as well. Psalm 68, you'll learn that the title is actually as inspired as the verses. Now, sometimes your own translation puts some kind of title in, and of course that's not inspired, that's just done by the publishers. But whenever you see like a psalm of David. Okay, that's actually verse zero. That's actually part of the inspired text. And what's interesting about this morning in Psalm 68 is not only does it say it's a psalm of David, but then it goes on to call it a song. Now, ironically, almost all of the psalms are part of the hymn book of the Old Testament church. But periodically the inspired title actually highlights the fact that it's a song. Now, those of you who know me well at all know that I'm an audiophile. I love music. I always have. Music is what kept me sane and kept me company through the difficult teenage years that you couldn't pay me to go back to. I amassed a large uh, album collection. I then gave them all away when I was converted. And now I'm trying to gather them all up again. Music has a profound influence on our souls, on our emotions. Certain songs touch different parts of our heart. They can make us feel deeply. It can increase our joy. Songs can also influence the physical heart. When we work out or exercise, researchers have proven that listening to upbeat music can actually increase your mood, increase your motivation, increase your stamina, increase your power, and increase your strength. I've seen it when it comes to a stationary bike. And there's a song that I really like that's got a great rhythm and it just gets me going. And there's something about the song that keeps me focused away from my pain, away from the idea of why am I doing this, and I actually just start getting into it. One of the benefits, if there are any, of the COVID crisis is uh, since the church has been pretty much shut down for several months, uh, I have the dream of having my own gym. And for those of you, again, who know me well, uh, I'm a basketball fanatic. And the beautiful thing about the gym, with nobody in it, is there's a great sound system, a speaker system in the gym. And there's a connection to my iPhone, and I can put on my playlist and just blow this place out and, and just enjoy it. Now, what happens after you've shot maybe 100, 150 three-point jump shots, you, you begin to shoot short because you're not jumping as much. You're tired. And then a song will come on. For me, Leonard Skinner, Call Me the Breeze. And I just find new energy 
and those jump shots start going in again. You've probably had the same experience, whether it be a cycle class or on the treadmill or anything else that you may do for a workout. And then when it comes to our walk with God, songs can really influence our faith. Songs that recite the past deeds and acts of power of God that fuel our faith in the present and increase our stamina and our endurance and inspire us to keep on keeping on. Listen, this pandemic, Satan is trying to use it to really shoot an arrow at the heart of the church. Do you realize that consultants are telling us church attendance is down over 70%? Consultants are estimating that when all this is passed, the typical church is only going to get back to 70% of their pre-COVID attendance. Now, I believe better things about Oak Mountain. I believe God's uniquely at work among us. And we look forward to all being together once again. But the point is, part of what inspires us to get back into the saddle, to come on back and get even renewal in our commitment are these songs of the Psalms. Now, the context especially points to renewal. In 1 Samuel 7, the Philistines captured the Ark of God. You remember what the Ark was? The Ark of the Covenant Uh, It held the Ten Commandments. Uh, It held Moses' staff that budded. Um, And when the Philistines captured the ark, Israel was discouraged like the presence of God was no longer with her because that was the very presence of the glory of God with Israel. Well, what's so funny is the Philistine gods began to topple right before the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines then got rid of it, but it never got back to Jerusalem for 20 more years. Finally, in 2 Samuel 6, David brings the Ark back to Jerusalem with singing and shouting and dancing. And David writes this psalm reminding God's people of God's presence with them. And as the ark returns to Jerusalem, there's a covenant renewal ceremony where David writes a song of all of the covenant blessings of God that we are to rejoice in as God's people. But also at the covenant renewal ceremony of the ark coming back into Jerusalem, we renew our commitment for the covenant responsibilities of faith and obedience. So this is a song about covenant renewal. And what's timely about this is we're coming to a table of covenant renewal this morning as well. At this table, God reminds us of all of the covenant blessings that are ours in Christ. And at this table, we respond 
with words that say, God, I surrender afresh. I long to commit to follow you in new obedience and fresh faith. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's word. And follow along. Psalm 68 is a long psalm. We're only going to read verses 1 through 10, but then I'll comment on many of the verses even that we don't read. Psalm 68. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exalt before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people... When you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. What a great song to inspire our hearts, and to empower us to endurance. May God bless the hearing and teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. This is His Word. He gave it to us because He loves us, and He wants us to be inspired and motivated and strengthened so that we might persevere and our hearts might soar with fresh faith. Let's pray. Father, use this song. Lord, it's like we're working out spiritually and we're tired. And we're thinking about getting off the bike or stopping the race. God, don't let us encourage us this morning through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, three covenant blessings highlighted as the ark returns to Jerusalem that lead us and inspire us to take on our covenant responsibilities of faith and obedience. First of all, rejoice in the Spirit's mighty presence. We sang this song this morning, let God arise, let God arise. Verse 1, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, those who hate him shall flee before him. Now what you need to know is that David didn't make up this lyric to this song. It's a cover, if you will. It's a cover for the song of Moses. In Numbers 10, verse 35, Moses is talking about when the ark of God leads the people of Israel from place to place in the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. 
And in Numbers 10.35, Moses says, or whenever the ark set out, Moses said, God shall arise. And he quotes word for word what we have in Psalm 68, verse 1. And of course, Moses isn't quoting David. David is quoting Moses. Israel saw this over and over. Wherever she went, the Lord led. It's, it's like when a military campaign, you have the lead scout, the, the best shot, the best sniper, the most sensitive and in tune soldier, your advance guard, the minesweeper, if you will. That is our God. What are you facing right now that you can't believe where the Lord seems to be leading you? Almost like in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, maybe you feel you're there relationally, emotionally, spiritually, maybe even physically. And God says through this song to your heart, I always go before you in the mighty presence of my spirit. Verse 2, as smoke is driven away, you shall drive them away. Who? The enemies of us and our souls and our faith. As wax melts before the fire, so God's enemies will just melt away. None of Israel's enemies were able to stand before her, including at the Exodus God's people walked through the Red Sea on dry land. When Pharaoh and his armies tried it, God covered them up with the waters of the Red Sea, and they all drowned. God goes before you where you think it is a valley of the shadow of death, and it feels that way, and it's dark, and it's confusing, and it's fearful. God wants to sing the song to our hearts. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always go before you. And lead you in victory. As a matter of fact, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14, Paul writes these words. God always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ Jesus. See, being led by the Ark of the Covenant or the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire as Israel was. That wasn't unique to them. We're still being led by the mighty presence of God's Spirit. The evil ones must fear. They will melt as God goes before His people. But look at verse 3. But, strong contrast, but the righteous shall be glad. Now you're saying, but Bob, that's not my hope because I could never say I'm righteous. Well, remember the gospel. What does it mean to be righteous? To be righteous doesn't mean that you have built your own record of goodness before God. It doesn't mean that you've attained to a level of earning God's acceptance. To be righteous means that you receive a righteousness that is not your own. One that was lived out on your behalf by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In Philippians, Paul calls it a righteousness not from the law as a result of works, but a righteousness that is received from God by faith and is in Jesus Christ. 
And if you have transferred your trust from your own record and your own works and your own hope in yourself to Christ and His finished work, His obedient life, His substitutionary death, then you are righteous. And because you're righteous in Christ, look at all the terms of joy and gladness in verses 3 and 4 and even throughout the whole psalm. The righteous shall be glad. There'll be gladness, exaltation, jubilation, joy, singing. Verse 4, sing to God, lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. Paul asked the Galatian questions a Christian, uh, Galatian Christians, a question. There, I knew I could get it out. The question is this. What has happened to all your joy? I ask you that this morning. Through these several months of trial, trouble, distress, have you seen a drop-off in your joy? God says, remember, I go before you in my mighty presence every bit as much as I went before Israel. And then the Ark of the Covenant preceded Israel as they went in and appropriated the promised land. The first battle, the battle of Jericho, The Ark of the Covenant led the people and they just walked around in circles and they were silent. And they were reminded of Exodus 14, 14, where God says, The Lord will fight for you. All you must do is remain silent. And joy comes from hearing the song that God goes before us and will fight and defeat our enemies and lead us in triumphal procession. Verse 7, When you went out before your people, you marched through the wilderness. And that happened as Israel faced enemy after enemy after enemy. God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. But, though that reality won't change if you're a Christian. There's nothing you do to change that reality. The experience of your heart over that reality. does relate to your faith. Do you hear me? Whether God goes before you, that is beyond question. Your experience of the joy of that reality depends on whether you're listening to the song. And not just the lyrics, but hearing the music. Our daughter Hannah lived in Uganda for a couple years as a missionary. Lori and I had the privilege uh, one time of uh, visiting her and seeing what she did and getting a look at the mission she was involved in. But then we had a couple days to, to play together. We went on a little mini safari. And we also went to this one place um, where Uganda is uniquely situated where there are places that are right on the equator. 
Now, there's some pretty interesting phenomenon on the equator, right? I mean, like on a globe, it's just this imaginary line, right? But that line is for real. Like, it has significance. Like, it makes a difference which side of the equator you are on. And which side of the equator you are on comes down to a matter of inches. There are these places that have these clear sinks, plexiglass, and they have water constantly streaming through them, and, and you can see the drain. And people go by the thousands to look at two drains about a foot apart. You know why? Because in the northern hemisphere, water goes down the drain clockwise. Six inches apart of this imaginary line that's actually for real. Now, there's not a line painted around the world. But this thing, the equator, is for real. And six inches away from the sink on the northern hemisphere is a sink for the southern hemisphere. And the water goes down the drain counterclockwise. It's the wildest thing. It's called the Coriolis effect. It has to do with the rotation of the earth. But it's specifically rated, related to the equator. The other reason people go to that place is to feel godlike. Right? People can only be in one place at one time, right? But on the equator, next to the sinks, I can plant one foot in the northern hemisphere and one foot in the southern hemisphere, and I am godlike. I am I am omnipresent. Except for I'm not. I'm just in a unique place on the planet. God, however, is omnipresent. He is everywhere present at the same time. And so he can go before me in my battles. He can go before you in your battles. He can go before every one of his children in their battles. And he does. The question is, will you rejoice in that fact? Will you believe it? Rejoice in the Spirit's mighty presence. By the way, we're about to go to the table in a few moments. He will be at this table too. He goes before us to fight our enemies and to make our hearts glad. Secondly, rejoice in the Father's tender compassion. Let me say something about the first point of God's mighty power. This is really important. God delights more in using His power to help the poor and the needy then he delights in using his power to defeat his enemies. God delights more in using his power to help the weak and the needy than he delights in using his power to destroy his enemies. Verse 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of of widows. You know how helpless orphans are? They have no father who cares for them, no father who will provide for them. They are abandoned. And that kind of need and helplessness and weakness and abandonment 
touches the heart of God. I think so many of us think that God's waiting for us to be strong and have it together. You know something that's hotly debated? Well, at least it's debated by me. This whole idea that God doesn't play favorites. I think you'd have a hard time defending that biblically. Because God seems to always be for the poor. He always seems to be for the marginalized. He always seems to be for the refugee. He always seems to be for the fatherless. He always seems to be for the husbandless. God always seems to be for the brokenhearted. Over and over and over and over and over in Scripture. So this whole idea that God doesn't play favorites, I'm not so sure, biblically speaking. Of course, the beauty of it is we all qualify to be God's favorite if we acknowledge our brokenheartedness, our poor in spe- poverty of spirit. We all tend in the flesh to see ourselves as orphans. That's why we always try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That's why we're always fending for ourselves. That's why we're always defensive. That's why we're always so self-reliant and self-determined. And we think it's strong. But God favors the brokenhearted. God favors the helpless. God favors the weak. Protector of widows. You know, a, a, a woman who had been married, if her husband died, she, was, she all of a sudden became nothing. She had no rights. She had no protectors. No legal standing. No way of making an income. A woman without a husband in David's day was in deep, deep weeds unless she had family. But David's talking about a widow who's her widow indeed. And God says, I will step in and I will protect her. Look at verse 6. God settles the solitary in a home. Those who are lonely, those who are isolated, those who are rejected. God has favorites. But despair not. You can easily qualify as one of God's favorites if you're willing to. To acknowledge your true condition as needy, helpless, weak, brokenhearted. And guess what? Those are the things the world hates to admit. And we live in that world. And so as a result, everything in us wants to deny the very things that make the compassion of God real in our hearts. You lead prisoners to prosperity. People who are in a tight spot. People who are, who are enslaved to sin and temptation. 
God leads prisoners to prosperity. Verse 9, you restored your inheritance as it languished. Remember Israel in the wilderness? She became thirsty, she became hungry, and yet God always, always provided. Verse 10, your flock found a dwelling in your goodness. You provided for the needy. Remember the 23rd Psalm, the shepherd's psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall never be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures filled with with wonderful grass. He leads me beside still waters, not muddy waters, not polluted waters, but still clean, crisp, cool waters. And then he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God is a God of compassion. And surely mercy and goodness and kindness will follow us all the days of our lives. This is the song God is singing to our hearts. And just like when you're tired on the stationary bike and a song comes on that gets you rocking, that's what God wants to be the result of this psalm. Next year, if I can find it here, will be the 100th anniversary of a medical device, Band-Aid. 100th year anniversary next year, invention of the Band-Aid. Stops bleeding a little bit. Protects from infection if you put some antibiotic ointment, or they even some of them even come with antibiotic ointment now. Keeps a cut clean, enables you to work without it getting in the way. But you know what studies have found about band aids? More than any medical help, band aids are just as important for emotional help and support. Young children that have received vaccinations, they cry and they cry until the nurse puts on a Band-Aid. And in the research, in most of the cases, the crying stops immediately. The pain didn't go away, but compassion enabled them to face the pain more bravely. That's our God's tender compassion. This life has hurts. It wounds. But God comes in His fatherly, tenderly compassion. Even and especially when we find ourselves languishing. And at this table this morning, in a few moments, we go to a table of compassion. And thirdly and finally... Rejoice in the Son's abundant salvation. By the way, do you notice the Trinitarian progression? We have God's mighty spirit. We have the Father's tender compassion. We have the Son's abundant salvation. Look at verse 18. Famous verse because Paul quotes it in Ephesians 4 about Christ. You ascended on high, leading a host of captains in your captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even the rebellious among men. So the picture is of God as this great warrior or better to fit our point, Jesus as the captain of the Lord's host. And he conquers the promised land. He conquers the Egyptians first of all. And as Jesus conquers 
Israel's enemies, he receives gifts, plunder, spoils of war from those nations that he conquers. And then he takes those gifts, that plunder, the spoil of war, and he redistributes it to Israel. Paul uses it in Ephesians 4 about King Jesus who led captivity captive. In other words, the captivity of sin, Satan, and death that enslaved us. Christ led those captors captive. And as a result of the cross and the victory of the cross, there's all kinds of plunder. There's all kinds of spoils of war. There's all kinds of treasure from the victory. And Jesus then is able to give us lavishly this abundance in our salvation. That's the picture here. But that abundance must be appropriated. The treasure's there. It's in the account. But faith makes withdrawals. And how many of us have a bank account with Jesus with all the treasures in the world, but we're never making withdrawals because we refuse to believe in the abundance of salvation. Look at verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. What that means is who loads us down with blessings. Dump truck loads of grace on a daily basis. God is not meager or stingy with his grace. He pours it out by the truckload. And he also meets us at the table with a truckload of grace as well. Verse 20, our God is a God of salvation. To the Lord belongs deliverance from death. The salvation of Christ that is abundant saves us in three ways. First of all, from the penalty of sin, we're redeemed from hell itself. From the power of sin on a daily basis, we're able to say no to sin and temptation and yes to righteousness more and more. And then ultimately we'll be saved from the very presence of sin itself. Our God is a God of salvation. Verses 24 to 27, we see people of the tribes from the north and tribes from the south. And at the communion table, all of us in our various families, groups, tribes, we come together in unity. And then in the last part of the psalm, we see this. In verses 29 to 35, we see God taking enemies and not merely conquering them, but converting them. See, the ultimate heart of God is not to kill enemies. The ultimate heart of God is to convert enemies from people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. Look at verse 31. Noble shall come from Egypt and Cush. That's Ethiopia. We're talking about the continent of Africa. Verse 32. O kingdoms of all the earth, sing to God. The abundance of God's grace is not for the American church alone. The church of Jesus Christ is not primarily white. It's white, black, red, yellow. The grace of God is upon the nations. And the diversity of the nations, may it be seen 
in the church. I think I've told you before, I'll end with this, uh, a movie that was actually a uh, movie of the year. It was uh, Best American or Best Foreign Film uh, won the Academy Award. It's Danish. It's called Babette's Feast. Uh, it's about two sisters who were raised by a very strict father who was a pastor. He formed a very strict, very stern, very hyper-legalistic and conservative sect. As a matter of fact, these two daughters, when they were young, were very beautiful. And they had two men in particular that were their suitors that were pursuing marriage. And because of their father's influence, they decided it would just be more pious and more godly to stay single. And so they said no. Then as these sisters became older, they became more dour, they became more bitter. They said they loved Jesus, but they never talked about him. Their sect hadn't seen a convert in decades. Who would want to know a God like that? One of the old suitors who was in Paris during the time of the French Revolution had a cook, a kitchen maid, whose name was Bobette, and he sent her to the two sisters, and their lives began to change. She brought joy. She brought peace. She brought harmony and comfort and levity. And what they didn't know was Babette had been playing the lottery. With some of her receipts, some of her revenue, she would send back to Paris and play the lottery. And one year she won. And as a result, she decided she was going to throw this great party, this lavish banquet, hence Babette's feast. And she invited the two sisters and the entire sect which made up the town, and they were all just sour and dour. And they decided, though they would go, they would not enjoy it. Nor would they compliment her about anything. So she sent from all over Europe, <clears throat> and she had china and crystal and lavish dishes. And then the movie begins to change. And the lighting on the table begins to be brighter. And colors that you couldn't even see begin to appear. And as they eat... People forgive people that had held grudges against each other for years. People who had never talked to one another for decades and not even understanding why anymore began to talk to one another. The whole room lit up. There was joy. There was vision. There was hope. And all because of the lavishness of the feast. God tells us in this song, that we have a mighty feast in the saving grace of Christ.